Science is a beautiful, fascinating world, but how many times have you listened to a scientist and had no idea what they were talking about? The podcast in the spotlight wants to bring you science in a refreshingly clear way that everyone can appreciate. In the Spotlight is put on by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force and hosted by me, Emily Schaefer. Each episode, I interview a graduate student or postdoc in the sciences about their work. They practice their science communication skills, and you get to hear about the amazing new science being done on the front lines of research straight from the scientists themselves. In our first season so far, we've covered everything from nuclear engineering, the neuroscience of learning, earthquakes, identity development, statistics, and so much more. And we really focus on the parts of science that matter most to you. How does this relate to the world around us? What big picture problems are trying to be solved? And even what policies might be needed to support the science and its outcomes? There will always be something new to learn about in science, so join us for an episode soon. You can listen to the podcast in the spotlight on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast players, and you can follow us on Twitter at SpotlightThePod to stay up to date with the show. Happy listening! My name is Rachel Gilfarb, and I'm a neuroscience PhD candidate at The Ohio State University. I care about a lot of things, but I have a passion for my field of neuroscience. I know I'm not alone in feeling this way, though. On this podcast, I interview other neuroscience graduate students across the globe to find out why the we should care about what they do. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Rachel. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you very much. I am also extremely excited. I've been dying to have you on and we finally, we finally get to do this. So yes, finally schedules align. Long time listener, first time guest. (laughs) (laughs) Long time, long time fan. Um, Okay. So why don't we start with um, an introduction? Yeah, so my name is Zoe Tapp. I am a fourth year graduate student with the neuroscience PhD program at the Ohio State University. Um, I'm pretty sure we're contractually obligated to add the V. Um, and I study uh, stressors, specifically sleep disturbances following traumatic brain injury or TBI, as we will most likely refer to it. How did you get into this? Because it's, I, I know that being a student at Ohio State, where both of us go to school, that it's a huge TBI center. So can you tell us a little bit how you got into this kind of research, why Ohio State? Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I actually have been part of the neurotrauma research community um, since I first started research. So I went to undergrad at University of Pittsburgh. Um, let's go Pitt. Uh, and I um, knew that I wanted to be in neuroscience like from going to University of Pittsburgh. Um, so I looked at a bunch of research labs and I initially actually was very interested in uh, neuroimmunology as a whole. So specifically how the immune system kind of communicates with the uh, 
nervous system and how that can affect a lot of different things like psychiatric symptoms or specifically in my case, I was interested in multiple sclerosis because my mom has MS. Um, and that's what got me interested in neuroscience. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't find any MS labs at Pitt um, and at least that were taking students at the time. And uh, so I stumbled upon uh, this one lab um, by Dr. Uh, Ed Dixon. Uh, and he is, um, unbeknownst to me at the time, he is one of the, arguably one of like the top three TBI researchers in the whole country. Um, he's huge. He actually created the uh, fluid percussion model that I use in my thesis work. Um, did not know that at the time, had no idea who this guy was, um, but he studied neuro neuroimmunology um, in the context of traumatic brain injury or TBI. Uh, so I asked if I could join his lab. He said yes. Um, and I got this great exposure to TBI. I started reading more papers about it, um, really understanding the field more. Um, and something about Pitt is that it's actually the epicenter or one of the epicenters of um, the CTE, like media blitz that happened a couple of years ago. Um, so CTE being chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, it's kind of the best known TBI induced disease or condition, depending on kind of what school of thought you're coming from, uh, that specifically is associated a lot with football players. Um, so most recently, Aaron Hernandez was a big person in that. Um, and actually the, the first observation of that happened at Pitt. Um, so there was kind of this huge bubble around that, um, that got me really interested in TBI and everything. So my, my interest, uh, in neuroimmunology continued, but specifically started to be more focused in TBI. Um, so then when I was applying to graduate schools, I knew that I wanted to go to a graduate school that had a great neuroimmunology program, which Ohio state is one of the top ones. I don't think anybody argues that. Um, and then specifically there are, uh, like you said, there's a lot of great people studying TBI um, and specifically Dr. Godbout at the time, because um, this was again, four years ago, was kind of the major name there. Um, and then I was actually introduced to Dr. Kokaiko Cochran, who is my uh, kind of primary advisor because I'm co-mentored by them. Um, through a seminar series where she, we were hosting Dr. Ann McKee, who again is associated with that CTE kind of media blitz. Um, and we bonded a lot over that. So it was actually after I met her during that, that um, we got talking and I realized that her interest aligned a lot with mine with specifically focusing on the neuroimmunology within TBI. Um, and now we're here. <laughs> uh, so a lot, I've, I've been part of the neurotrauma community for a while, but I certainly kind of stumbled upon it uh, serendipitously when I was uh, a, a youngin, really. Um, and I've, I've stayed in it ever since. I really adore it now. Um, I think it's, it's such a prevalent problem that, I mean, all of us know that getting hit in the head is a bad thing, but exactly how and why and what can we do about it? Those, those are the big questions that we really don't know still. You mentioned a couple key phrases mm -hmm. and one of them that I know was new to me until I started grad school at Ohio State is neuroimmunology. Mm -hmm. What is that? Yeah, that's the big question, you know. <laughs> um, so neuroimmunology at its basis is really how our immune systems, which traditionally we think of as this major component of like our blood and our periphery, um, when you get a cut and that cut swells up and gets red, that's your immune response. Um, but what we don't think of a lot just in everyday life is the fact that our brain also has an immune system. Uh, and I think a lot of people with um, 
some more introductory science or uh, some more introductory neuroscience specifically um, have heard of the term uh, like blood brain barrier or uh, immune privileged or things like that, where it specifically kind of pulls apart the brain and the nervous system and thinks of them as two completely different things. Um, but in reality, the brain has a lot of communication with the immune system and the immune system is very, very important in maintaining the brain and uh, really making sure that everything can function properly um, and can uh, those danger signals can really be communicated properly to the brain because I mean, of course, our brain is one of the most important organs in our body. Um, so having the immune system to protect it and talk with it is really important. And that's really what neuroimmunology is, is that kind of communication. Awesome. That, that was like one of the greatest, most succinct explanations of such a complex field. Um, <laughs> so then you mentioned the fluid percussion model, mm. um, because I... I know when I explain TBI research to my, my family and friends that the idea of giving a traumatic brain injury or inducing a traumatic brain injury in an animal, it's, it's hard to wrap your brain around. So can you oh, wrap your brain around <laughs> brains? Um, can you explain what a fluid percussion injury is and maybe how it informs treatment. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, with experimental or preclinical TBI work, uh, there are a million and two models of TBI. Because in reality, when we think of uh, human TBI and TBI survivors, TBI patients, no injury is the same. No two injuries are alike. Um, there can be different etiologies. So essentially how that injury comes about, whether it be a fall or a car crash or something like that. Um, there are different uh, movements that happen during that. For example, someone who's in a car crash wearing a seatbelt versus someone who's not, they'll have a completely different injury, even though they were in the same accident. Um, so for TBI, it's a little bit hard to choose an experimental model uh, because there are all these different components that can really change the response to injury. And particularly because we're studying the immune response to injury, um, really picking and choosing which model we're doing is very important to better than understand how the model will apply to that immune response. Um, so in our lab, we really like fluid percussion because it has a lot of different aspects of a lot of different types of TBI. Um, so TBI is broadly defined in three different severities, uh, mild, moderate, and severe. Um, some people will include concussion in mild TBI, other, people's, other people consider it a completely different uh, aspect. Um, I do not work in mild TBI, so I do not have an opinion in that argument. Um, but we uh, look at fluid percussion more in the moderate to severe range. So we're really interested, not necessarily in like football players, but they have a lot of repetitive mild TBI. We're more interested in the very common uh, instance where somebody will get a more moderate to severe TBI one time in their lifetime and then have a lot of uh, long-term consequences from that. So for example, those people who are having really bad falls or car accidents or things like that. Um, so our model is defined as moderate to severe. And then within that umbrella of TBI, there are also two other uh, kind of modalities of TBI uh, being either focal or diffuse. 
Um, so focal TBI is uh, something that we will consider for like penetrating injury or something where the tissue itself is directly being damaged. Um, and that causes a, what we call a lesion area where that tissue has died um, and will leave uh, a distinct like region that is affected from that. Um, and then there's also diffuse injury. And so diffuse injury um, is when uh, you have just overall the brain will kind of bounce around in the skull a bit for lack of a better term. Um, and so that will result in injury all over the place, um, but differently on one side than the other. And so that's what we refer to actually as ipsilateral being on the same side or contralateral being on the opposite side. Um, but just because the contralateral side of the brain is on the opposite side of the injury doesn't mean that it's not also injured in some way because of that diffuse aspect of the injury. Um, so fluid percussion has the moderate to severe severity aspect, as well as both focal and diffuse injury. Um, so we get a lesion area, we get that distinct focal tissue loss on that ipsilateral side of the brain, um, but then we also get that diffuse injury on the contralateral side. Um, and then the uh, name fluid percussion actually comes from how we deliver that injury. So the way that we do that is we have a um, surgery preparation where we essentially open up the skull and then we expose that uh, open piece of the skull, which uh, has the dura, which is one of the coverings of the brain. Uh, that is exposed to a fluid pulse, um, which then will kind of hit on the brain. It'll indent it. That causes that focal injury. And then it also pushes the brain around in the skull, which causes that diffuse injury. Um, so that's essentially a, a quick thing of uh, fluid progression. No, it's really interesting, especially because not only do these animals survive mm -hmm. after, but a lot of them can end up doing really well despite this uh, seemingly very intense brain trauma. So what are some of the things that you study specifically using this model? Yeah, so with us, um, broadly, we study neuroimmunology. Uh, but of course, that is a very complex topic with a lot of different aspects in it. Um, so we have our little niche of that, um, which for us is specifically what sort of experiences or um, environmental factors can uh, happen after TBI to then uh, worsen or exacerbate uh, neuroinflammation after TBI. Um, because a lot of work has actually shown that uh, neuroinflammation, um, specifically when there's a, a more enhanced inflammatory response in the brain than there really should be, um, we call that chronic or maladaptive. Um, that chronic and maladaptive neuroinflammation contributes to a lot of consequences of injury. So a lot of cognitive dysfunction, um, things like memory issues, learning issues, uh, a lot of um, emotional regulation problems. A lot of people will experience uh, issues with anger or uh, inability, inability to maintain relationships or even form new relationships um, and even motor dysfunction. Uh, so things like fine motor skills, being able to move their fingers and toes um, with as much dexterity as we often think of for neurotypical people. Uh, so we are interested to see what sort of factors because TBI doesn't happen in a bubble. There's a lot of stress associated that with that. There's a lot of things that happen after TBI where, okay, the, the injury has happened. We can't prevent that. 
um, what can we do after to help it or mitigate those consequences? Um, and so for us, we see that stress uh, is of course a very prevalent problem just in the general population, um, let alone in the injured population where they're having all these additional consequences and having to kind of get used to their new normal with this injury. Um, and so specifically with us, uh, there's, of course, everyone has experienced a lot of different types of stress. Uh, there's really no way to perfectly model just the broad experience of stress. Um, but there's one kind of through line that we've found where in both uh, human populations and even rodents, uh, any sort of stress event can result in really robust sleep disturbances. Um, so we find that sleep disturbances provide a common pathway through which to study the effects of stress following TBI. That's really interesting because I know that it is a common misconception that following TBI, you're supposed to wake people up to make sure like if you get a concussion, I know when I was little and I got a concussion, my mom would wake me up every 45 minutes to make sure that I was, you know, okay, that I was breathing. Um, I'm not really sure what else she was checking, but so you're saying that that is an additional stressor. Definitely. So this kind of, uh, misconception essentially born of, oh, once somebody hits their head, you can't let them fall asleep for there, people say many different lengths of time, a day, two days, three days. I've, I've even heard a week, which is horrifying to me. Um, you need sleep guys. Uh, so that misconception was born out of, uh, the real need um, in emergency medicine for after somebody has had a TBI, um, whether it be mild to severe, um, there can be a lot of delayed consequences of that. Uh, so primarily with the idea of wanting to wake somebody up, um, there's a big issue with brain bleeding that we don't necessarily know if a brain bleed is happening, is going to happen um, pretty soon after injury. That can be very delayed just from swelling or whatever else the injury may have included. Um, so it, it is common for the first maybe like six to 12 hours to wake somebody up just to make sure that they aren't having any sort of really bad headaches or that they are still conscious because it's possible that if you have a bad enough brain bleed, you can go unconscious and that really needs to be treated. Um, but after that first bit after injury, you gotta get your sleep. I mean, just like any other injury, if you break your ankle, if you break your arm, uh, you have to get that sleep so that your body can have that energy and that time to heal and your brain being no exception to that. Your brain needs to be able to heal. And the main way that your brain heals, um, even just day to day is through sleep. Uh, so sleep is extremely important following an injury um, and definitely should not be as restricted as I think a lot of people think it should be. Um, well, of course, like we're not medical doctors though. If a medical doctor says otherwise, then follow what they say. But it's it's certainly a very, very common misconception where I know even my partner who uh, was in lacrosse, he had sustained, uh, most likely sustained a concussion. Uh, he actually didn't go to the hospital for it, but uh, his mom uh, woke him up every couple hours for two days. And it's not good. <laughs> um, first of all, go to the hospital if you think you've sustained a concussion or a TBI hard stop on that. But second of all, uh, yet yeah, that is that taking medical advice kind of into your own hands for that, um, that cannot be very good for just a person healing and a person needing to recover from that event. How does lack of stress, how to not lack of stress, how does lack of sleep 
enhance stress. Right. Uh, yeah. So un unfortunately, not a very succinct answer, um, but I will give the succinct answer for what we use in lab. <laughs> um, so uh, the stress system it has multiple different systems. Um, we focus on the branch that is more for long-term responses to stress, which is the um, HPA axis or stress axis. Um, so the stress axis uh, or HPA axis stands for hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Um, there's a lot of syllables in there, uh, but essentially it's this axis of three pieces of your body, the hypothalamus and the pituitary being in your brain, and then your adrenal glands being on top of your kidneys, actually, um, they all coordinate to create this hormone called uh, cortisol in humans or in rodents, it's corticosterone, but acts as the same thing. Um, I just refer to it as court because it's court in either. Um, and that hormone is really is uh, very important for not only stress responses, um, but also for just managing uh, circadian rhythms and managing your sleep. Uh, so circadian rhythms are overall this idea that your body is attuned to, and pretty much any organism's body um, or personhood or just self is attuned to uh, the planet, the, the sun and uh, the day and night. So circadian rhythms are thus attuned to those to change function. So for humans, because we stay awake during the day and we go to sleep at night, our circadian rhythm entails that we are more awake during the day and then we want to sleep at night. So court has a hand in that, in that court will control arousal. So the more court you have, the more stress responsivity you're having, the more awake you're going to be. Um, so you will have higher court during the day and then lower court during night. Um, but with sleep, if you are having sleep disruption through some sort of stress, whether that be sitting there and kind of ruminating, oh, I'm really stressed about this test that's coming up, or I'm really stressed about this uh, relationship that I'm having problems in, um, that's going to disrupt your uh, court production, your normal court production, um, and actually increase it during when you're supposed to be sleeping. Um, and so that can essentially throw everything out of whack um, and can really have a lot of uh, consequences for how you're feeling during the day. You'll be more tired. You won't be able to focus as easily. Um, and uh, then at night you may have even more trouble sleeping because then you're sitting there think, being stressed, thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't sleep well last night. I have to go to sleep now. Why, aren't you, why can't I sleep? So it becomes this vicious cycle between the stress axis and the sleep axis, um, constantly feeding back into each other and just overall increasing kind of the life stress that you're experiencing. Um, and so that's what we're seeing, especially in injured populations, is that they are particularly vulnerable to this enhanced life stress um, through things like sleep disorders or sleep disturbances, I should say. Um, and then that can feedback actually on your immune system. And so we want to know how that can feedback on the immune system. Well, that was actually my next question is what evidence do we have that court for one thing um affects the immune system like how does it affect the immune system i know that i know that it's context dependent but maybe for our audience just a brief uh, a brief tutorial on how court and the immune system can interact yeah so court uh is a class of 
uh, what's called glucocorticoids. So they're a class of steroids in your body um, that are released from your adrenal glands. Uh, technically their original purpose and thus their name glucocorticoids is for mobilizing uh, glucose or like energy in your body. So when you're really stressed, you feel your heart pumping more, you can feel really energized depending on the context or more anxious or more scared. Um, and that's your energy, your body mobilizing that energy um, excuse me, through glucocorticoids or court specifically in this context. Um, now there's a really important second, uh, job of court, um, that we're particularly interested in, and that is actually the inflammatory response to court. So, uh, court binds to what's called glucocorticoid receptor or just GR. Um, and GR is expressed on pretty much every single tissue in your body. Uh, it is expressed on your, uh, like, uh, capillaries in your heart, in your lungs, and those all help with that response to stress. Um, but it's also expressed on uh, immune cells, just like circulating through your blood. It's expressed in immune cells in the brain, um, particularly the immune cell we're most interested in, uh, microglia. And that when court binds to glucocorticoid, glucocorticoid receptor on those cells, uh, we find that ac that actually dampens or suppresses inflammation. Um, and so this is actually something that most people have had an experience with uh, day to day and they just don't really realize for things like um, cortisol cream or uh, steroid injections for uh, anti or for uh, immune disorders. So like my mother who has multiple sclerosis, um, which is like an overactive immune system, she used to get steroid injections and that suppressed her immune system so that she wouldn't be having that same reaction. Um, and with cortisol cream, it can be uh, your like a rash or an inflammation on your skin. And then when you put it on there, it kind of dulls down that inflammation. Um, so court is very potently anti-inflammatory um, and thus, uh, with TBI and in the context of my research, um, we want to know how in the context of stress after injury, that anti-inflammatory action may change. Um, and particularly this is because TBI, and we've actually known this for a very long time, but haven't really known the prevalence or the uh, consequences of this, um, TBI can uh, very often call, cause HPA or stress axis dysfunction, resulting in a suppression of that axis. Um, so overall, when you have less court in the system, uh, you have less of that anti-inflammatory action and you can have more or enhanced inflammation after injury. This is, this is very important and very specific research. Very specific, yes. So, so how did you, how, I, I know that you were talking about the, um, the, the line that you were able to draw on a lot of the both human and rodent literature about sleep disturbance, but how did you specifically get interested in this? Yeah, so I, it's actually ironic. Um, I hated the HPA axis when I started grad school. Uh, it's it, the HPA axis is one of those things that you learn when you are a neuroscience major in undergrad and uh, part of like the overall endocrine system, which is essentially just hormones in the body. And oh my gosh, I hated it. There were so many things that could change the littlest bit about the system and then everything would be thrown out of whack. And so learning it and learning like, oh, so this one person like is stressed this one day and then it affects them for the next month. Like that just, it drove me insane because I was like, oh my gosh, how am I supposed to memorize 
every way that the system can go wrong. It can go wrong in so many ways. But now that I'm in grad school and I'm really, I'm looking at this, I see I have such a different perspective about rather than thinking of it exasperatedly and thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to memorize all these ways it can go wrong? I'm rather thinking of it as, wow, there's so many ways this can go wrong and we don't know anything about it. We don't know why or how or what the consequences of it are. Um, and so I, uh, besides being interested in TBI work just with Dr. Kokaiko Cochran and Dr. Godbout, um, I really gripped onto the stress aspect because you can't, I mean, you we can't just tell TBI survivors and TBI patients, oh, just don't be stressed. Just, just like, don't don't be stressed. It's that, it's that easy. I mean, we've all experienced that. You can just tell yourself to stop being stressed and then you're not stressed anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so with this big system, that's so important for so many things in life, it, having it be dysfunctional and knowing about this since, uh, I think, I believe the very first clinical report of HPA axis dysfunction following a traumatic brain injury was in 1918. Uh, there was a case study that was recorded. We've known that this happens since as early as 1918, and we have no idea what the consequences of it are. Um, so really just being able to change my perspective of being somebody who was memorizing work that other people had done, changing into someone who is now doing that work and trying to figure it out, um, that really, it, it really changed my perspective. And now I adore the HPA axis. I'm all about it. <laughs> um, I'm all about stress. I'm all about sleep disturbances. Um, but yeah, just, I, I think understanding, uh, what could happen and, and knowing, appreciating that the, the smallest shift can really dramatically change a person's life and change their quality of life. Um, and yeah, that's, it's just knowing the frustration and things that TBI survivors and patients must go through. And then even from just personal conversations I've had with some just while working and presenting um, what they do go through and understanding what kind of impact this work can have on somebody. It's so funny because the same thing that you begrudgingly studied in undergrad about the HPA access, all the things that bothered you about it, that's the reason I'm fascinated with, mm -hmm. neuro, with neuroendocrinology. That's right. just my jam. I'm like, yeah, the hormones tell me, like, I, I think of hormones in the brain as, <laughs> as, um, the sound system on a DJ booth, just kind of like moving things up and down and like, wiggy, wiggy, like over. That's just like how hormones are acting on the brain at all times. Um, <laughs> that's a great analogy. I've never actually thought of it that way. And that's yeah. like, Essentially, the, the TBI is pretty much like a whole record scratch and just right, like- Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then you flip over the record, you smash it, you try and play it. It's like- <laughs> What's happening? Why is it sounding like this? We don't know. <laughs> Gosh, what's happening? Um, no, yeah, I, I think of it also hormones as, as like a volume dial on a radio too, that it's like, okay, we're going to- crank that up. Oh, oh, too much. Okay. We're going to crank it down. Like, and it just kind of that fine balance that you just keep kind of toying with over and over again. That's kind of why I think your research is so fascinating because not only are you looking at the HPA axis, you're looking at something that on a 
small scale and on a large scale and behaviorally have huge consequences. Um, it's like, honestly, really, really cool. Um, you mentioned previously that in uh, both humans and rodents that acquire a traumatic brain injury that there can be changes in behavior. Um, you mentioned anger, one of, one of the ones that I remember, um, anxiety or anxiety-like behavior if we're talking about rodents. So can you maybe talk about how you investigate that in your model? Yeah, definitely. Um, so with our model, uh, we're doing a lot of exciting behavioral work. Um, and in part, that's because I have the extreme privilege of uh, my PI, Dr. Kokaiko Cochran, is actually the head of the behavioral core at Ohio State, the Rodent Behavioral Core. Um, so she is just incredible whenever it comes to behavioral testing. Like she, she's the go-to person for anybody who has any questions about behavior. Um, so of course she's like this wealth of information, especially when it comes to our model that we're working on and that she's mentoring me in um, and that she's leading this research that I'm doing. Uh, so for us, I am particularly interested um, in looking especially at uh, cognition and anxiety-like behavior, as you said. Um, so very important distinction, the fact that we look in rodent models, um, we can't ask them if they're anxious, so we do have to specify anxiety-like behavior. Um, and especially because we work in prey animals uh, with being within the rodent model, um, their anxiety is going to be pretty different. Um, but so a pretty common test that we've looked at in the past and we've actually published on previously um, in Journal of Neurotrauma is uh, the elevated zero maze. And so uh, it is exactly how it sounds. It is an elevated maze that looks like a zero um, and it's split into four quadrants. So two of the quadrants uh, across from each other are have uh, high walls on them. So they are like more enclosed arms is what we call them. Um, and then the other two arms across from each other are uh, what we call open walls or, or open arms. So they don't have any walls on them. Um, and so because we use this prey animal, uh, mice, um, classically, they will stay to the closed arms more than they go into the open arms. Um, and you can look at this behavior called approach avoid conflict, where even though they uh, naturally want to explore and they want to figure out what's in their environment to try to find food or other animals or something, um, they also don't want to be out in the open. They don't want to be exposed. Um, so this approach avoid conflict uh, general, generally results in them pretty highly exploring one of the closed arms, but not really going to the one across the way because then they have to cross that open arm. Uh, and another way to show it is that they sometimes they will cross that open arm, but very sparingly. They won't spend really any time in there. They only cross it to go into the other closed arm. Um, now, an animal with uh, very extreme anxiety-like behavior just won't move in the maze. They will just sit in their little closed arm. They won't explore it. They won't look into the open arms. They won't try to find anything else because they're too, uh, they're exhibiting anxiety-like behavior indicative of being too anxious to explore or really care about anything else like that. They just want to sit there and not do anything. Um, with approach-avoid conflict uh, and what we've actually seen with exposure to sleep disruption after TBI is uh, our animals will explore the maze the most. Um, so they will go 
from one closed arm to another, um, but then they'll actually spend the least amount of time in the open arms. So they they are having this more anxiety-like phenotype where they're still spending a majority of their time in the closed arms, but they're actually exploring the maze more. So it's kind of this, it's this strange dichotomy of behavior where they're still more anxious for quote unquote uh, in mice, um, but then they also don't have the same amount of um, essentially self-preservation uh, that a typical mouse would, an uninjured mouse would. Um, and so this is actually also indicative of some human behaviors that people will see where uh, TBI survivors or um, TBI patients will have increased risk taking behavior. Um, and we're not entirely sure why, um, but it seems to be essentially the human equivalent of this approach avoid conflict where they, they don't see the possible risks associated with that. They just kind of do what they want to do. Um, and that can actually result in a lot of issues like substance abuse in TBI populations, um, which is another very important and uh, large aspect of TBI research. Um, so it's, it's really interesting how we can have, I mean, it's literally just an elevated zero maze, but we can make a lot of these uh, judgments and kind of conclusions from this interesting dynamic of behavior just because we know what to expect because these are really great model organisms, um, but they're also really highly functioning model organisms. So we can uh, interpret a lot on what behavior that they're currently doing. Cool, and what was the cognitive test? So cognitive test, um, in that specific paper, we didn't do any cognitive tests, um, but we have uh, previously done a couple different ones. Um, I know that actually in the Godbout lab, uh, they have done things like novel object recognition or novel object location. Um, and so that's actually a pretty common test where um, you have uh, objects that will classically feed the mouse's want to explore and to really understand what's in its environment. Um, and that's not only, not only because mice are very curious, but also because it's important for them to understand what's in their environment to know when something is new there because they are prey animals. Um, and so you can actually test a mouse's cognition and memory retention um, through exposing them to these interesting objects and then switching those objects or moving those objects in a certain way after a certain length of time. Um, so I believe this was actually also done in uh, David Lone's group, who's another very prominent TBI researcher. Um, and we have a great relationship with him. He works at uh, Trinity College um, and previously worked at University of Maryland. Um, and he's shown a lot of uh, interesting behavioral differences, not only in motor behavior, like the fine motor behavior that I mentioned before, but also in cognition with things like novel object recognition and location. Um, and really just from even measuring the amount of time that these animals can spend uh, with a novel object, so like a new object that wasn't in their environment previously, um, you can interpret a lot on what they're actually learning and what they're understanding and what they're taking in in their environment. And if they can't differentiate as well with the, between those two objects, which one's the old and which one's the new, um, that can be very detrimental for a mouse. And if a human is having a similar issue with cognition, um, with not even just necessarily understanding, oh, is this a new object or an old object, but things like uh, memory tests or um, remembering faces or names that can be a huge impact on their quality of life and their comfort out in public and that could really affect how they're interacting with people um, so it's 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 at its face value a lot of rodent behavioral tests seem very uh, cut and dry it's just either they are doing the test or they're not what can you really take from it um, but there's a lot of there's a lot more parallels between rodent behavior and human behavior 
um, then we really think, and I think that we can learn a lot from these preclinical models um, and understand really what's happening at a higher level. We do know that there's something called pituitary shear that can occur following TBI um, that may affect this production of hormones. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk about that a little bit possibly? Definitely. Yeah. So we, we can speculate. We'll, we'll have fun with this. Right. hundred percent speculation. Um, but I did, I, so I, I did a good amount of research on pretty much every level of the HPA axis. Cause these, these three aspects of this axis, they all coordinate together. Um, after TBI, there can be dysfunction on every single level of that. Um, and particularly the pituitary gland for exactly like you said, um, pituitary shear. So the pituitary gland is this just out there gland that is so vulnerable, just the way that it's positioned. But it's in the physically, it's physically out there. Physically out there. It's just this little like knob of, I, I always think it looks like a uvula personally, um, <laughs> this little knob of tissue that is so vital to appropriate stress responses, growth, uh, just cognitive function, just so many aspects, hunger, temperature regulation, like just so many aspects of human and animal alike function. And it's just this tiny ball of tissue sticking out from the brain, specifically through, uh, I believe it's through the cribriform plate, at least in animals, I believe so, which is this plate of bone filled with holes. It's just sticking through that. And so then you have a TBI and so frequently it just gets pulled or ripped or damaged in all these different sorts of ways because it's just so out there and vulnerable. And then you have all of these long-term consequences from it. You have suppressed uh, growth hormone, you have suppressed court production. Um, there's just all these uh, problems get, that can stem from it. And uh, that can even then backtrack to the hypothalamus, which is the first step of the HPA axis. Um, and results in decreased volume of the hypothalamus or decreased functionality of the hypothalamus. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's wild to me that it's not, uh, in, in hospital settings, at least, of course, I'm not a doctor still, I'm not a neurologist, but, uh, in standard care for TBI, it's actually not standard care to look at a pituitary hormone panel. Not every doctor will think to do that. Uh, they say, okay, you don't have a brain bleed. Um, okay, you're conscious, why? Like that's essentially it. And then they hand you off to a rehab specialist or maybe you get a long-term neurologist. Um, but it's not standard care to necessarily look at hormones immediately after TBI, let alone chronically. Um, and there's a lot of papers essentially saying, hey, we need to start looking at this. We need to start making this standard of care. Uh, but the, the care system overall, I mean, we could go on a whole tangent about that. <laughs> well, but it's- I'm pissed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, me too. I mean, like I, like I said from the beginning, it's we've known that this, this stress axis suppression is a problem since 1918. That is when the first case study was published and there have only been more since, but we have no idea what sort of consequences can come from this HPA axis suppression. Absolutely none. Like there's no, from, to our knowledge, 
Yeah. Lab is the first one looking at it. Just like what can happen, not even what causes it, what can fix it, just what happens. And it's just wild that we're, we're kind of, we seem to be the first ones to really be asking and answering this question. Um, and spoiler alert, a lot of bad stuff happens. <laughs> it's not good. We need to know what's going on and we need to mitigate these problems. But like, it's just just from even the, the couple years that I've been on this, I mean, I'm only a fourth year grad student and I can tell you, it's not good. <laughs> like, um, and it's just, it's, it's wild that, that no one's really been asking this question and it's not a standard of care. And it's, yeah, it makes me want to shout into the void and just be like, guys, just look at this. <laughs> no, I definitely have, have my research cut out for me, especially looking at TBI at like through a hormone lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously not to tread on your turf, but like looking maybe at other kinds of hormones that could be interacting with not just court in the immune system, but maybe the entire body to, to grossly affect behavior. Um, and oxytocin was just the first one that popped into my head when we, when we were talking about, you know, the cuddle drug is, uh, could obviously be production of that can obviously be interrupted. Wow. Definitely a lot to chew on. You talk about all these incredible options that you have for avenues of study, considering how little is known. But what are some of the major problems that you see in your field? Are you, do you have, I, I know sometimes that you have, we, we've spoken personally about issues with uh, generating animals. Um, what, what other kinds of issues do you have? Yeah, so, uh, and I think this is a common problem just in pretty much all uh, preclinical and clinical work for that matter in research is um, including both sexes under the microscope, um, but also including all genders behind the microscope uh, and really acknowledging that not only is it a prevalent issue in those being studied and that this research goes to, people of all genders get TBI, people of all genders experience these problems, um, people of all genders also need to be represented in those answering those problems and investigating those problems. And traditionally in neurotrauma research, uh, it is very uh, male and man heavy um, in research. Uh, I actually didn't really even have the opportunity to have a a female and identifying mentor until graduate school. Um, And thankfully, Ohio State is great with uh, including not only the binary, but also acknowledging the non-binary for that spectrum of gender. But I mean, it's just in the field there's it's so male dominated in neurotrauma and it's it's been great to actually being able to work with um research communities like national neurotrauma society um which specifically has uh programs to help um primarily female identifying uh people in the research community get their research more out there um but there are a lot of uh awards and organizations and things in place to help just kind of shift that view and really be more representative of not only those actually in the field and participating but also those who uh benefit from that field and who are affected by this overall topic 
That's so cool. I love that. Yeah, because I know that's something, I don't think we've talked about it, that I've spoken about it on the podcast before, but I know that there are a lot of sex differences in immunology and mm-hmm. in and in basic neuroimmunology. Um, so it's really important not only to establish the basics, but to establish response to trauma, um, especially like head trauma um, in both sexes of animals in preclinical work. So I definitely feel you on that one. You are uh, preaching to the choir on that one. Um, and to wrap up, can I get like a one or two sentence summary on why we should care about this? Okay, so why the should we care? Uh, well, people are surviving TBI more and more just as all the years pass and as medical science improves. And with that, people are experiencing these really long-term consequences that significantly decrease their quality of life. And those consequences not only contribute to their stress that they're experiencing, but it worsens it. And the stress then worsens those consequences and it becomes this awful vicious cycle where they can't control it. They can't control the stress that's in their life. They can't just stop being stressed. And so you should fucking care uh, because we need to help them. They deserve to be comfortable with themselves, to have a great quality of life as everyone does. And uh, they need people looking into these problems and trying to figure out what's happening and why is it happening? How is it happening? What is it doing? And really just letting them know that we care and that we see them, they're heard, they're seen, and we hope that we can help them in any way that we can. I love that. <laughs> Yay. Everyone should <laughs> care. <laughs> so um, before we go, do you have anything that you want to plug? Yeah. So um, I guess it depends on when this is coming out, uh, but we do have a paper uh, coming out here very soon, which will be my first uh single co-author or single first author paper that is like the foundation of my graduate thesis. Um, so very excited for that. Keep a lookout for Zoe Tapp in NCBI or also Kokaiko Cochran and uh, God Bout as well. Um, besides that, uh, if you are at all interested in neurotrauma research, uh, whether you are a scientist or a student or whether you're an undergraduate, graduate, professional, if you're a lay person, doesn't matter if you're in science or not, um, I highly suggest checking out the National Neurotrauma Society. Um, They have great resources for anybody and everybody interested in learning more about neurotrauma, how they can help, um, just getting more information out there. I mean, just knowledge of TBI, how to prevent it, how to treat it is, is huge. And it's significantly contributed to that increased survival rate of people with TBI. So definitely look into them. Um, if you are a part of the neurotrauma uh, research community, please consider joining. The membership is great. Um, and uh, if you're Ohio-based, um, 
Ohio State itself has an amazing neurotrauma community, um, specifically through the chronic brain injury research or uh, chronic brain injury discovery theme. Uh, they have a lot of great outreach programs and things that you can volunteer for um, to participate in the injured communities and really uh, be able to experience and understand the community more, um, which again is open to people who are either in neurotrauma research or even if you're not, if you just have an interest or a, a uh, desire to help, then they are more than willing to take help, of course. And you're on Twitter. And I'm on Twitter. I am on Twitter. I have a science Twitter. Um, my handle is at tap underscore Zoe. Uh, it's T-A-P-P underscore Z-O-E. Um, we'll send me a message. Yeah. We'll link it below. Yes. Link it below. Um, definitely give me a follow, send me a message. I love DMS. I, uh, will respond to them, um, as long as they're appropriate. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I, I try to stay really active on science Twitter. Um, I love science communications and everything, which of course I know I'm preaching to the choir. Um, yeah. and, uh, speaking to the science communications queen right now. <laughs> It's uh, really passionate about science communications, both in and out of neurotrauma research. Um, so if you have any interest, definitely give me a follow. Both of my PIs have Twitters um, as well. Uh, oh gosh, we'll link those handles below as well. They're, they're much longer than mine, so I won't spell yeah. it out. <laughs> we'll definitely link those below. Yeah, and they, they are pretty on top of it for the new and exciting neurotrauma research. So if you have any interest at all, definitely give them a follow. Um, and of course, uh, like, and subscribe to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I should probably start doing that. Like, like, and subscribe, rate, yeah. review. Rate, yeah. review. <laughs> number one fan. If you're, if you're in science, this is perfect for imaging. If you're imaging and not listening to this podcast, what are you even doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time and being here. It means a lot. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is so fun. <laughs>